Chapter forty of the Hand of Ethelberta by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter forty. Melchester continued. The commotion wrought in Julian's mind by the abrupt incursion of Ethelberta into his quiet sphere was thorough and protracted. The witchery of her presence he had grown strong enough to withstand in part, but her composed announcement that she had intended to marry another and, as far as he could understand, was intending it still, added a new chill to the old shade of disappointment which custom was day by day enabling him to endure. During the whole interval in which he had produced these diapason blasts, heard with such inharmonious feelings by the three auditors outside the screen, his thoughts had wandered wider than his notes in conjectures on the character and position of the gentleman seen in Ethelberta's company. Owing to his assumption that Lord Mountclair was but a stranger who had accidentally come in at the side door, Christopher had barely cast a glance upon him, and the wide difference between the years the Viscount and those of his betrothed was not so particularly observed as to raise that point to an item in his objections now. Lord Mountclair was dressed with all the cunning that could be drawn from the metropolis by money and reiterated dissatisfaction. He prided himself on his upright carriage. His stick was so thin that the most malevolent could not insinuate that it was of any possible use in walking. His teeth had put on all the vigour and freshness of a second spring. Hence his look was the slowest of possible clocks in respect of his age, and his manner was equally as much in the rear of his appearance. Christopher was now over five-and-twenty. He was getting so well accustomed to the spectacle of a world passing him by and splashing him with its wheels that he wondered why he had ever minded it. His habit of dreaming instead of doing had led him up to a curious discovery. It is no new thing for a man to fathom profundities by indulging humours. The active, the rapid, the people of splendid momentum have been surprised to behold what results attend the lives of those whose usual plan for discharging their active labours has been to postpone them indefinitely. Certainly the immediate result in this present case was, to all but himself, small and invisible but it was of the nature of highest things. What he had learnt was that a woman who had once made a permanent impression upon a man cannot altogether deny him her image by denying him her company, and that by sedulously cultivating the acquaintance of this creature of contemplation she becomes to him almost a living soul. Hence a sublimated Ethelberta accompanied him everywhere. One who never teased him, eluded him, or disappointed him when he smiled, she smiled. When he was sad, she sorrowed. He may be said to have become the literal duplicate of that whimsical, unknown rhapsodist who wrote of his own similar situation. By absence this good means I gain, that I can catch her, where none can watch her, in some close corner of my brain. There I embrace and kiss her, and so I both enjoy and miss her. This frame of mind naturally induced an amazing abstraction in the organist, never very vigilant at the best of times. He would stand and look fixedly at a frog in a shady pool, and never once think of batrachians, or pause by a green bank to split some tall blade of grass into filaments without removing it from its stalk, passing on ignorant that he had made a cat-o'-nine-tails of a graceful slip of vegetation. He would hear the cathedral clock strike one, and go the next minute to see what time it was. "'I never seed such a man as Mr. Julian is,' said the head-blower. 
"'He'll meet me anywhere out of doors and never wink or nod. "'He'd hardly expect it. "'I don't find fault, but he'd hardly expect it, "'seeing how I play the same instrument as he do himself, "'and I've done it for so many years longer than he. "'Oh, I've indulged that man, too. "'If tis pedals for two martial hours of practice, I never complain. "'And he has plenty of vagaries. "'When tis hot summer weather, there's nothing will do for him "'but quire, great, and swell together, till your face is in a vapour. And on a frosty winter's night, he'll keep me there while he tweedles upon the twelfth and sixteenth till my arm be scrammed for want of motion. I never speak a word out of doors. Somebody suggested that perhaps Christopher did not notice his coadjutor's presence in the street, and time proved to the organ blur that the remark was just. Whenever Christopher caught himself at these vacuous tricks, he would be struck with admiration of Ethelberta's wisdom, foresight, and self-command in refusing to wed such an incapable man. He felt that he ought to be thankful that a bright memory of her was not also denied to him, and resolved to be content with it as a possession, since it was as much of her as he could decently maintain. Wrapped thus in a humorous sadness, he passed the afternoon under notice, and in the evening went home to Faith, who still lived with him, and showed no sign of ever being likely to do otherwise. Their present place and mode of life suited her well. She revived at Melchester like an exotic sent home again. The leafy close, the climbing buttresses, the pondering ecclesiastics, the great doors, the singular keys, the whispered talk, echoes of lonely footsteps, the sunset shadow of the tall steeple reaching further into the town than the good bishop's teaching, and the general complexion of a spot where morning had the stillness of evening and spring some of the tones of autumn formed a proper background to a person constituted as Faith, who, like Miss Hepzibah Pynchon's chicken, possessed in miniature all the antiquity of her progenitors. After tea Christopher went into the streets, as was frequently his custom, less to see how the world crept on than there to walk up and down for nothing at all. It had been market-day, and remnants of the royal population that had visited the town still lingered at corners, their toes hanging over the edge of the pavement, and their eyes wandering about the street. The angle which formed the turning-point of Christopher's promenade was occupied by a jeweller's shop, of a standing which completely outshone every other shop in that or any other trade throughout the town. Indeed, it was a staple subject of discussion in Melchester how a shop of such pretensions could find patronage sufficient to support its existence in a place which, though well populated, was not fashionable. It had not long been established there, and was the enterprise of an incoming man whose whole course of procedure seemed to be dictated by an intention to astonish the native citizens very considerably before he had done. Nearly everything was glass in the frontage of this fairy mart, and its contents glittered like the Hamacresus stone. The panes being of plate glass and the shop having two fronts, a diagonal view could be had through it from one to the other of the streets to which it formed a corner. This evening, as on all evenings, a flood of radiance spread from the window-lamps into the thick autumn air, so that, from a distance, that corner appeared as the glistening nucleus of all the light in the town. Towards it, idle men and women unconsciously bent their steps, and closed in upon the panes like night-birds upon the lantern of a lighthouse. When Christopher reached the spot, there stood close to the pavement a plain, close carriage, apparently waiting for some person who was purchasing inside. Christopher would hardly have noticed this had he not also perceived, 
pressed against the glass of the shop window, an unusual number of local noses belonging to overgrown working lads, tosspots, an idiot, the ham-smoker's assistants with his sleeves rolled up, a scotton-lot freeholder, three or four sempstresses, the young women who brought home the washing, and so on. The interests of these gazers in some proceedings within, which, by reason of the gaslight, were as public as if carried on in the open air, was very great. "'Yeah, that's what he's a-buying, oh! Ha, ha, ha!' said one of the young men, as the shopman removed from the window a gorgeous blue velvet tray of wedding-rings, and laid it on the counter. "'Tis what you may come to yourself sooner or later, God have mercy upon ye, and as such no scuffing matter,' said an older man. "'Faith, I'd as lief cry as laugh to see a man in that corner.' He's a gent getting up in years, too. He must have been through it a few times afore, seemingly, to sit down and buy the tools so cool as that. Well, no, see what the shies would do at such times. You paint yourself, then. No man living is himself, then. True, said the ham-smoker's man. Tis a thought to look at that a chap would take all this trouble to get a woman into his house, and a twelve-month after would as soon hear it thunder as hear us sing. The policeman, standing near, was a humane man through having a young family he could hardly keep, and he hesitated about telling them to move on. Christopher had, before this time, perceived that the articles were laid down before an old gentleman who was seated in the shop, and that the gentleman was none other than he who had been with Ethelberta in the concert-room. The discovery was so startling that, constitutionally indisposed as he was to stand and watch, he became as glued to the spot as the other idlers. Finding himself now for the first time directly confronting the preliminaries of Ethelberta's marriage to a stranger, he was left with far less equanimity than he could have supposed possible to the situation. "'So near the time,' he said, and looked hard at Lord Mount Clare. Christopher had now a far better opportunity than before for observing Ethelberta's betrothed. Apart from any bias of jealousy, disappointment, or mortification, he was led to judge that this was not quite the man to make Ethelberta happy. He had fancied her companion to be a man under fifty. He was now visibly sixty or more. And it was not the sort of septuagenianism besides which a young woman's happiness can sometimes contrive to keep itself alive in a quiet, sleepy way. Suddenly it occurred to him that this was the man whom he had helped in the carriage accidents on the way to Nolsey. He looked again. By no means undignified, the face presented that combination of slyness and jocundity which we are accustomed to imagine of the canonical jolly-jogs in medieval tales. The gamesome curate of Mewden might have supplied some parts of the countenance, cunning Friar Tuck the remainder. Nothing but the Viscount's constant habit of going to church every Sunday morning when at his country residence kept unholiness out of his features. For though he lived theologically enough on the Sabbath, as it became a man in his position to do, he was strikingly mundane all the rest of the week, always preferring the devil to God in his oaths. And nothing but antecedent good humour prevented the short fits of crossness incident to his passing infirmities from becoming established. His look was exceptionally jovial now, and the corners of his mouth twitched as the telegraph needles of a hundred little erotic messages from his heart to his brain. Anybody could see that he was a merry man still, who loved good company, warming drinks, nymph-like shapes, and pretty words, in spite of the disagreeable suggestions he received from the pupils of his eyes, 
and the joints of his lively limbs, that imps of mischief were busy sapping and mining in those regions, with the view of tumbling him into a certain cool cellar under the church aisle. In general, if a lover can find any ground at all for serenity in the tide of an elderly rival's success, he finds it in the fact itself of that ancientness. The other side seems less a rival than a makeshift. But Christopher no longer felt this, and the significant signs before his eyes of the imminence of Ethelberta's union with this old hero filled him with restless dread. True, the gentleman, as he appeared illuminated by the jeweller's gas jets, seemed more likely to injure Ethelberta by indulgence than by severity while her beauty lasted, but there was a nameless something in him less tolerable than this. The purchaser, having completed his dealings with the goldsmith, was conducted to the door by the master of the shop, and into the carriage, which was at once driven off up the street. Christopher now much desired to know the name of the man whom a nice chain of circumstantial evidence taught him to regard as the happy winner where scores had lost. He was grieved that Ethelberta's confessed reserve should have extended so far as to limit her to mere indefinite hints of marriage when they were talking almost on the brink of the wedding-day. That the ceremony was to be a private one, which it probably would be because of the disparity of ages, did not, in his opinion, justify her secrecy. He had shown himself capable of a transmutation as valuable as it is rare in men, the change from pestering lover to staunch friend, and this was all he had got for it. But even an old lover sunk to an indifferentist might have been tempted to spend an unoccupied half-hour in discovering particulars now, and Christopher had not lapsed nearly so far as to absolute unconcern. That evening, however, nothing came in his way to enlighten him. But the next day, when skirting the close on his ordinary duties, he saw the same carriage standing at a distance, and paused to behold the same old gentleman come from a well-known office and re-enter the vehicle. Lord Mountclair, in fact, in earnest pursuit of the business of yesternight, having just pocketed a document in which romance, rashness, law, and gospel are so happily made to work together that it may safely be regarded as the neatest compromise which has ever been invented since Adam sinned. This time Julian perceived that the broom was one belonging to the White Hart Hotel, which Lord Mountclair was using partly from the necessities of these hasty proceedings, and also because, by so doing, he escaped the notice that might have been bestowed upon his own equipage or men-servants, the Mountclair Hammercloths being known in Melchester. Christopher now walked towards the hotel, leisurely, yet with anxiety. He inquired of a porter what people were staying there that night, and was informed that there had only one person in the house, Lord Mountclair, whom sudden and unexpected business had detained in Melchester since the previous day. Christopher lingered to hear no more. He retraced the street much more quickly than he had come, and he only said, "'Lord Mountclair, it must never be!' As soon as he entered the house, Faith perceived that he was greatly agitated. He at once told her of his discovery, and she explained, "'What a brilliant match!' "'Oh, Faith,' said Christopher, "'you don't know. You are far from knowing. It is as gloomy as midnight. Good God, can it be possible?' Faith blinked in alarm, without speaking. "'Did you never hear anything of Lord Mountclair when we lived at Sanborn?' "'I knew the name. No more.' "'No, no, of course you did not. Well, though I never saw his face, to my knowledge, till a short time ago, 
I know enough to say that, if earnest representations can prevent it, this marriage shall not be. Father knew him or about him very well, and he once told me what I cannot tell you. Fancy, I have seen him three times, yesterday, last night, and this morning, besides helping him on the road some weeks ago, and never once considered that he might be Lord Mount Clare. He is here almost in disguise, one may say. Neither man nor horse is with him, and his object accounts for his privacy. I see how it is she is doing this to benefit her brothers and sisters, if possible. But you ought to know that if she is miserable they will never be happy. That's the nature of women. They take the form for the essence, and that's what she is doing now. I should think her guardian angel must have quitted her when she agreed to a marriage which may tear her heart out like a claw. You are too warm about it, Kit. It cannot be as bad as that. It is not the thing, but the sensitiveness to the thing, which is the true measure of its pain. Perhaps what seems so bad to you falls lightly on her mind. A campaigner in a heavy rain is not more uncomfortable than when we are in a slight draught, and Ethelberta, fortified by her sapphires and gold cups and wax candles, will not mind facts which look like spectres to us outside. A title will turn troubles into romances, and she will shine as an interesting Viscountess in spite of them. The discussion with Faith was not continued. Christopher stopping the argument by saying that he had a good mind to go off at once to Nolsey and show her her danger. But, till the next morning, Ethelberta was certainly safe. No marriage was possible anywhere before then. He passed the afternoon in a state of great indecision, constantly reiterating, I will go. End of chapter 40